for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again. Um, today I want to talk to you about the proper way to assess value. I want to talk to you about assessing value. We assess value to what we think is important. Would you agree with that? I'm willing to pay for something if I think it has value. Sadly, that's, that's largely subjective based on our feelings. It's not objective. Most of the way we feel has nothing to do with fact. It is feeling. It's subject to how I feel. And so because of that, we all add value differently to, to different things. Uh, for example, there's a painting. I was kind of doing some research trying to figure out an illustration for this, this teaching tonight. And I, I found a painting titled Symphony in Blue. Now, I'm, I was an artist growing up. Like, I, I, was, I was pretty good at it, actually. Uh, and so art always intrigued me, but this some, some of this stuff freaks me out. I don't know what it is or what purpose it serves. But there's this painting, four foot by three foot by four foot, it's not that big, on white canvas called Symphony in Blue. And essentially what it is is a single shade of blue in what seems like random haphazard different size brush strokes. But it honestly looks like something my grandson painted. Like he just went at it with three different brushes with the same color blue and didn't even cover the whole canvas. Uh, I've got pictures from kids in the church that have drawn me pictures on the wall in my office. I'd give more money than I'd give for that thing. But they're asking a million dollars for it because the guy is famous. And so they assess something to have value that I find no value in. Uh, if you go to California and buy a T-shirt on Rodeo Drive, buy that same T-shirt at Walmart in Lebanon, you're going to pay less for it because we, we're we not paying $500 for an old beat-up junkie T-shirt, right? And so, well, I'm not. I'm, maybe somebody is. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about our building fund campaign. <laughs> uh, but But I want to talk to you today about the subjective way in which we assess value and how that should be objective. The problem with the church, us, people who call themselves believers, is that we assess little or no value to our relationship with God. Now, I know that's a huge brushstroke, and that's, a, that's an indictment that, that may be seemingly too broad for you, but let me explain. We've never really given the value to God that he deserves. In Genesis 3 through 6, after God said don't, we read this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and she took from its fruit and ate. And she also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so you're talking about assessing value. That doesn't talk about assessing value. It absolutely does assess value because God told them to do something else. They should have valued what he said to do and been obedient to it. But instead, according to the words of the text, they assessed personal desire and wisdom a greater value than a relationship with God. 
And you're like, well, that's, that's original sin. That doesn't really have anything to do with me, except for that the Bible tells us that we are actively in sin too. We're not just sin by birth, we're, or by, by birth, we're sin by nature or by action. And so Romans 3.23 tells us this. I say this text to you all the time, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we still consistently do that. That is a rebellion based on our unwillingness to, to properly assess value to the commandments of God. Would you agree with that? I hope that you would, because it's true. And so I want to talk to you about the way we should assess value, who assessed value how, and how it should have been done differently. And I'm going to do that out of, like I said, Mark chapter 14. Let me read this text to you. And it's a passage you're all very familiar with. It says, now the, or probably, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes, those are two different feasts. I'm going to get into those in a second. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. That's Jesus. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii, that is three, 300 days wages, that's what that is. 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her, scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can go, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. She has done a, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. And so I want to talk to you about the three assessments that were made in this text about what people add value to or what they give value to. And so I'm going to make three of them. Like I said, the first point is the religious, that is the scribes, the Pharisees, assess value to position. They value their position. People of authority value their position, oftentimes over anything else. It's during this time, in verse 1, it says, the Passover feast and the unleavened bread were two different things. The Passover, as you might be familiar with, was a, a feast that commemorated the Passover of the death angel in the book of Exodus that ultimately caused the the Israelites, the Hebrews, to be released into the desert so that they might worship God. And so they celebrate this Passover because anybody that put blood on their doorpost, the death angel passed by them, a shadow of the blood of Jesus Christ, passed by them, and they lived. And so this is the biggest Jewish holiday. They celebrate this holiday. Tens of thousands of people would have come from all over Israel to be in Jerusalem at this time, which is where Jesus was. It was two days before he was crucified. This would have been on the Wednesday before his crucifixion, probably. And then the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread 
overlapped the Passover in that it was a time, let me make sure I got this right, a specific time, seven days overlapping the Passover where the Israelites were not allowed to have leaven of any kind in their house. Leaven being a symbol for sin. And so they're celebrating the Passover. They're celebrating the leaven, the, the, the leaven bread in that they've removed, or the unleavened bread, in that they've removed all the symbolic sin from their life in celebration of what God had done in Israel. Everybody with me? Or in Egypt. Why is this important? Because there would have been, like I said, tens of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. And this is what they said. They were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. Their intent is clear. They want to kill Jesus. They enter this scenario already determined to seize Jesus and kill him. But instead, they said this, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So they assessed their position as more valuable than the life of Jesus because they didn't want to upset the people. The people that were there, because as you know, a couple of days prior to that, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem as a king. He was highly celebrated. He had, at the very least, these people, most of them would have thought him to be a prophet, some of them a, a, the Messiah. But either way, to have killed him, to seize him and kill him would cause them some very unnecessary, in their eyes, trouble. And so they wanted to please the people more than they wanted to serve the Lord. So they didn't kill him not because they were worried that Jesus might be the Messiah. They didn't kill him because they were worried the people might be mad. But not only the people, the Romans, because the Romans counted on the scribes and the Pharisees to overwatch, look after, and keep under control the Jewish population. And if they had rioted, then the Roman soldiers would have come, established a greater level of dominance during what was their most sacred time of feast. And so they decided that they wanted to assess value on people and on their position over Jesus. Man, I tell you, this makes me mad. Does it make you mad? But let me tell you, don't be too mad because you do the same thing. We do the same thing. We don't determine to call Jesus for who he is. He is Lord. Amen? The Bible is very specific to say that he is Lord. Matthew 28 and 18, he says it himself. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the creator God, the sovereign authority, the one that accomplished all things according to Colossians 1, 15 through 7. Let me read this to you real quick. This is good. You're going to want to hear this. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let me tell you, the God that we serve deserves the proper position in our life. We need to assess position based on the lordship of Jesus Christ, not on what people think, not what on government thinks, not on what our employers think or society thinks, but on the lordship of Jesus. Does that mean that sometimes you may be offensive? Yes. Does that mean sometimes people are going to be upset with you? Yes. But let me tell you, we don't want them to be upset. We're not offensive for the sake of being offensive, but the gospel, because it calls us to decision, is by its very nature offensive. If I tell you a truth, and that truth has to, causes you to change your whole lifestyle or make a decision about your whole lifestyle, that's going to be offensive to you. I have a friend of mine that's living in sin. I told him, if you continue to do what you're doing, the Bible says that you're gonna, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And so now he has a decision to make. Am I going to give Jesus the proper position in my life, or am I going to worry more about what's going on around me and assess value to my sin? And that's offensive. I'll tell you, as of right now, he's assessed value to his personal position, not lordship. But we have to give Jesus lordship. We don't have the authority over our life. We don't have the ability to make our own decisions. When I was taken out of the slave market of sin, which I was a slave to sin, according to the book of Romans, and placed as a slave unto righteousness then that means I am a slave under righteousness. What I want to do doesn't matter. My freedoms don't exist outside of the righteous requirements of the word. Somebody needs to write that down because that's good. And study and meditate on it and make the offensive decision that you should be making. Stop adding value or assessing value to people or to things or to stuff that makes you feel good about you. Amen? Oh, man, Pastor Jim, that's tough. It is tough. But when we don't do it, we're doing the same thing the Pharisees did. I would seize him. But I don't want to offend nobody. I don't want to offend anybody either. But if I had a choice about who I was offending, it would be them. Amen? And so... The Pharisees assessed value to people. The sinner, according to verse 3, assessed value to the Savior. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. There's a lot to say about this particular thing. She was a woman that was doing a thing in a place she should have never been in. Or that, according to the culture, should have never been in. She was a sinner. All the Bible tells us is that she's a sinner. There's reason to believe because she had a vial of perfume around her neck that she her particular sin was prostitution. And I make that assessment based on the fact that prostitutes of that time 
kept a vial of perfume around their neck and would dab that perfume on themselves to show and to advertise that they were open for business. And so she would have had that as a way of attracting customers. So this prostitute, the worst of the worst, is in a place with Pharisees in a room full of men in a time where women wouldn't typically be found in a room full of men. Tell me why. Because she wanted Jesus or that she cared about offending the people in the room. She assessed value to the Savior. She knew that he was the answer to what she was looking for. And I think that's beautiful. He took this alabaster, she took this alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Can I tell you before I say that, this woman, even though she was probably in a place she shouldn't have been, being a person who she shouldn't be, wasn't a distraction to Jesus. She was a purpose for Jesus. When I was at Cornerstone, there was a lady that came in, and the church was big enough, honestly, I don't remember if she was visiting or if she had been there sometime, but she came into the lobby and threw up in the lobby, like just all over the place. And she was so apologetic. She said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I'm not trying to be a distraction. I wasn't trying to be a distraction, blah, 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 blah. And she had to be told, listen, baby, you're not a distraction to us. You're our mission. You are the reason we exist. Because the Savior loved us enough to save us. We exist so that you might assess the same value to the Savior that we know that he has. Isn't that good? Now I want you to think about what she did. I told you that that's 300 days wages. If you do the math, if I remember right, just say $20 an hour, $160 a day. That's $48,000 in modern money. She broke and poured out on Jesus $48,000 of money. She assessed at the physical level the love of the Savior at $48,000. Not counting the trust and all that stuff she had in him too. And what was her reward? This, I think of this and it, it messes me up. I told you that two days after this, Jesus would have been crucified. The bathing habits of the time aren't like they were now. That costly perfume would have still been on Jesus on the day he was crucified. Now I want you to think that this woman's assessed value of the Savior, every time a whip came across his back and broke his skin, it would have released the scent of her worship into his nostrils. Every time he got punched or striped, he would have had to have smelled that and thought, I'm doing it for this one. And he wants to do the same for you. Our 
valuing the Savior has to go past the $48,000, though. It has to go to, I'm going to enter whatever room I need to enter, be in the space I need to be in around whatever people I need to be around to get to him. I don't care what they think. That's the way we should assess value to, to the Savior. That's how she assessed value to the Savior. Amen. Isn't that a challenge? The people that were there weren't even there to see Jesus. They were in Simon the leper's house. You know what that means? Simon had been a leper. Which means they didn't go there to see Simon. They went there to trap Jesus. They, they wanted to get Jesus, but they realized they couldn't do it. She may very well, besides one or two other people, been the only one there truly there to give Jesus what he deserved. And that is all of her and all that she had. Now, what does this break into the vial symbolize? I told you it was an advertising piece for her. What does it mean? It means the same thing to her. It means for us. It means we have to be willing to give up our lifestyle to get to Jesus. Because she gave up her advertising piece, saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. And she was willing to pay whatever cost to get it. I pray for you. I pray for myself. I pray for this church and this community that we find a love of Jesus like that, that we assess value to the Savior like that. You know why? Because the Savior assesses value to everyone. That's, that's my third point. In 6 through 9, we read this, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. The only thing I, I hate about text, logos writing text, is that there's no inflection in it. But you know he had to be impassioned when he said it. How dare you? She's doing what's right. Why are you bothering her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you wish you can do to them. But do not always, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she anointed my body beforehand for my burial. She didn't know what she was doing in regard to that, but Jesus did. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus said, I love her. Get your hands off her. You stop talking trash about her. You want to worry about somebody? There's plenty of poor out there to worry about. Go take care of them. Which I think was probably a slap in their face because they didn't take care of the poor. They decided to take care of their self first. I can prove this to you in Scripture. Let me, let me read this to you. This, this is often used as an offertory, and I'm not saying Jesus isn't commending her, but we need to read text in context. In verses Mark 12, starting in verse 38, Jesus is in his teaching was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplace and the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Why? Because they value their position, right? 
and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. Don't lose sight of that because we don't use this text when we use the next text for offerings. He says this, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury. There's no indication that there's a gap between him talking and him sitting down at the treasury. And began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came into two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors of the treasury. And for... For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned as she had to live on. Let me tell you what God never asked you to do. Give everything you have to live on. Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees to his disciples because they were devouring widows' houses. There's poor amongst you, but you decide you want to devour them and pressure them to give even their last cent instead of loving them like you should. How about you worry about the people you're tasked with taking care of and leave this woman alone? Everybody all right? The problem is we read the text and we, we break it up into verses. We don't read the whole text. And so I'm not saying Jesus isn't commending her faith if, in fact, it's an issue of faith and she's not being pressured. But what I'm saying is he's making a point to his disciples. They don't care for the poor. We're to care for the poor because Jesus cares for the poor because Jesus assesses value to everyone, the poor in finance and the poor in spirit. And we should too. I'm going to end on, and we should too. I tell you all the time, if you haven't heard this before, I apologize here at now. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they act like. I don't care what they smell like. I don't care what they say. Let them come because we're challenged to catch them. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will clean them. Amen. Lord forbid Christian people be offended by unchristian people who are coming into the house because they heard a rumor of hope exists here and then find nothing but condemnation instead. We can do better. Amen? Largely, this church does great. But the church can do better at assessing value, as Jesus does to everyone.